Chapter Twenty One of the Seven Secrets by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty One, Woman's Wiles. Look sharp! Cried the black-bearded ruffian who had feigned illness. Give him a settler, Arry. He wants his nerves common a bit. The fellow had seized my wrist, and I saw that one of the men who had sprung from his place of concealment was pouring some liquid from a bottle upon a sponge. I caught a whiff of its odor, an odor too familiar to me, the sickly smell of chloroform. Fortunately I am pretty athletic, and with a sudden wrench I freed my wrist from the fellow's grip, and, hitting him one from the shoulder right between the eyes, sent him spinning back against the chest of drawers. To act swiftly was my only chance. If once they succeeded in pressing that sponge to my nostrils and holding it there, then all would be over, for by their appearance I saw they were dangerous criminals and not men to stick at trifles. They would murder me. As I sent down the man who had shammed illness, his two companions dashed towards me with imprecations upon their lips, but with lightning speed I sprung towards the door and placed my back against it. So long as I could face them I intended to fight for life their desire was i knew to attack me from behind as they had already done i had surely had a narrow escape from their bullets for they had fired at close range at guy's many stories have been told of similar cases where doctors known to wear valuable watches diamond rings or scarf pins have been called at night by daring thieves and robbed therefore i always as a precaution placed my revolver in my pocket when I received a night call to a case with which I was not acquainted. I had not disregarded my usual habit when I had placed my thermometer and stethoscope in my pocket previous to accompanying the girl. Therefore it reposed there fully loaded, a fact of which my assailants were unaware. In much quicker time than it takes to narrate the incident I was again pounced upon by all three the man with the sponge in readiness to dash it to my mouth and nostrils. But as they sprang forward to seize me I raised my hand swiftly, took aim, and fired straight at the holder of the sponge, the bullet passing through his shoulder and causing him to drop the anesthetic as though it were a live coal and to spring several feet from the ground. "'Got him shot!' he cried. But ere the words had left his mouth I fired a second chamber inflicting a nasty wound in the neck of the fellow with the black beard. "'Shoot! Shoot!' he cried to the third man, but it was evident that in the first struggle when I had been seized the man's revolver had dropped on the carpet, and in the semi-darkness he could not recover it. Recognizing this I fired a pot-shot in the man's direction, then, opening the door, sprang down the stairs into the hall. One of them followed, but the other two wounded as they were, did not care to face my weapon again. They saw that I knew how to shoot, and probably feared that I might inflict a fatal hurt. As I approached the front door and fumbling with the lock, the third man flung himself upon me, determined that I should not escape. With great good fortune, however, I managed to unbolt the door, and after a desperate struggle in which he endeavored to wrest the weapon from my hand, I succeeded at last in gripping him by the throat, and after nearly strangling him flung him to the ground and escaped into the street, just as his associates, hearing his cries of distress, dashed downstairs to his assistance. Without doubt it was the narrowest escape of my life that I have ever had, 
and so excited was I that I dashed down the street hatless until I emerged into Lisson Grove. Then, and only then, it occurred to me that, having taken no note of the house, I should be unable to recognize it and denounce it to the police. But when one is in peril of one's life, all other thoughts or instincts are submerged in the one frantic effort of self-preservation. Still, it was annoying to think that such scoundrels should be allowed to go scot-free. Breathless, excited, and with nerves unstrung, I opened my door with my latch-key and returned to my room, where the reading-lamp had burned low, for it had been alight all through the night. I mixed myself a stiff brandy and soda, tossed it off, and then turned to look at myself in the glass. The picture I presented was disreputable and unkempt. My hair was ruffled, my collar torn open from its stud, and one sleeve of my coat had been torn out so that the lining showed through. I had a nasty scratch across the neck, too, inflicted by the fingernails of one of the blackguards, and from the abrasion blood had flowed and made a mess of my collar. Altogether I presented a very brilliant and entertaining spectacle. But my watch, ring, and scarf-pin were in their places. If robbery had been their motive, as no doubt it had been, then they had profited nothing, and two of them had been winged into the bargain. The only mode by which their identity could by chance be discovered was in the event of those wounds being troublesome. In that case they would consult a medical man, but as they would in all probability go to some doctor in a distant quarter of London, the hope of tracing them by such means was but a slender one. Feeling a trifle faint I sat in my chair, resting for a quarter of an hour or so. Then, becoming more composed, I put out the study lights, and after a refreshing wash went to bed. The morning's reflections were somewhat disconcerting. A deliberate and dastardly attempt had been made upon my life. But with what motive? The young woman whose face was familiar had, I recollected, asked most distinctly whether I was Dr. Boyd, a fact which showed that the trap had been prepared. I now saw the reason why she was unable to describe the man's sham illness, and during the morning, while at work in the hospital wards, my suspicions became aroused that there had been some deeper motive in it all than the robbery of my watch or scarf-pin. Human life had been taken for far less value than that of my jewelry I knew. Nevertheless, the deliberate shooting at me while I felt the patient's pulse showed a determination to assassinate. By good fortune, however, I had escaped and resolved to exercise more care in future when answering night calls to unknown houses. Sir Bernard did not come to town that day. Therefore I was compelled to spend the afternoon in the severe consulting-room at Harley Street, busy the whole time. Shortly before six o'clock, utterly worn out, I strolled round to my rooms to change my coat before going down to the Savage Club to dine with my friends, for it was Saturday night and I seldom missed the genial house-dinner of that most bohemian of institutions. Without ceremony I threw open the door of my sitting-room and entered, but next instant stood still, for seated in my chair patiently awaiting me was the slim, well-dressed figure of Mary Courtney. Her widow's weeds became her well, and as she rose with a rustle of silk, a bright laugh rippled from her lips, and she said, "'I know I'm an unexpected visitor, doctor, 
but you'll forgive my calling in this manner, won't you?' "'Forgive you? Of course,' I answered, and with politeness which I confess was feigned, I invited her to be seated. True to the promise made to her husband, she had lost no time in coming to see me, but I was fortunately well aware of the purport of her errand. "'I had no idea you were in London,' I said, by way of allowing her to explain the object of her visit, for in the light of the knowledge I had gained on the Nene bank two nights previously her call was of considerable interest. "'I'm only up for a couple of days,' she answered. "'London has not the charm for me that it used to have,' and she sighed heavily, as though her mind were crowded by bitter memories. Then, raising her veil, and revealing her pale, handsome face, she said bluntly, "'The reason of my call is to talk to you about Ethelwyn.' "'Well, what of her?' I asked, looking straight into her face, and noticing for the first time a curious, shifty look in her eyes, such as I had never before noticed in her. She tried to remain calm, but, by the nervous twitching of her fingers and lower lip, I knew that within her was concealed a tempest of conflicting emotions. "'To speak quite frankly, Ralph,' she said in a calm, serious voice, "'I don't think you are treating her honorably, poor girl. You seem to have forsaken her altogether, and the neglect has broken her heart.' "'No, Mrs. Courtney, you misunderstand the situation,' I protested. "'That I have neglected her slightly, I admit. Nevertheless, the neglect was not willful, but owing to my constant occupation in my practice.' "'She's desperate.' Besides, it's common talk that you've broken off the engagement. Gossip does not affect me. Therefore, why should she take any heed of it? Well, she loves you. That you know quite well. You surely could not have been deceived in those days at Kew, for her devotion to you was absolute and complete. She was pleading her sister's cause, just as Courtney had directed her. I felt annoyed that she should thus endeavor to impose upon me yet saw the folly of betraying the fact that I knew her secret. My intention was to wait and watch. I called at the Hennigers a couple of days ago, but Ethelwyn is no longer there. She's gone into the country, it seems, I remarked. Where to? she asked quickly. She's visiting someone near Hereford. Oh, she exclaimed, as though a sudden light dawned upon her. I know then. Why, I wonder, did she not tell me? I intended to call on her this evening, but it is useless. I'm glad to know, for I don't much care for Mrs. Henniger. She's such a very shallow woman. Ethelwyn seems to have wandered about a good deal since the sad affair at Kew, I observed. Yes, and so have I, she responded. As you are well aware, the blow was such a terrible one to me that, that somehow I feel I shall never get over it. Never. I saw tears genuine tears welling in her eyes. If she could betray emotion in that manner she was surely a wonderful actress. "'Time will efface your sorrow,' I said, in a voice meant to be sympathetic. "'In a year or two your grief will not be so poignant, and the past will gradually fade from your memory. It is always so.' She shook her head mournfully. "'No,' she said, for in addition to my grief there is the mystery of it all, a mystery that grows each day more and more inscrutable. I glanced sharply at her in surprise. Was she trying to mislead me, or were her words spoken in real earnest? I could not determine. Yes, I acquiesced. 
the mystery is as complete as ever. Has no single clue been found, either by the police or by your friend Jevons, is, I think, his name? she asked with keen anxiety. One or two points have, I believe, been elucidated, I answered, but the mystery still remains unsolved. As it ever will be, she added, with a sigh which appeared to me to be one of satisfaction rather than of regret. The details were so cleverly arranged that the police have been baffled in every endeavor. Is not that so? I nodded in the affirmative. And your friend Jevons, has he given up all hope of any satisfactory discovery? I really don't know, I answered. I've not seen him for quite a long time. And in any case he has told me nothing regarding the result of his investigations. It is his habit to be mute until he has gained such tangible result. A puzzled, apprehensive expression crossed her white brow for a moment. Then it vanished into a pleasant smile as she asked in confidence. Now tell me, Ralph, what is your own private opinion of the situation? Well, it is both complicated and puzzling. If we could discover any reason for the brutal deed, we might get a clue to the assassin. But as far as the police have been able to gather, it seems that there is an entire absence of motive, hence the impossibility of carrying the inquiries further. Then the investigation is actually dropped, she exclaimed, unable to further conceal her anxiety. I presume it is, I replied. Her chest heaved slightly and slowly fell again. By its movement I knew that my answer allowed her to breathe more freely. You also believe that your friend Jevons has been compelled, owing to negative results, to relinquish his efforts? she asked. Such is my opinion, but I have not seen him lately in order to consult him. In silence she listened to my answer and was evidently reassured by it, yet I could not, for the life of me, understand her manner, at one moment nervous and apprehensive, and at the next full of an instant imperious self-confidence. At times the expression in her eyes was such as justified her mother in the fears she had expressed to me. I tried to diagnose her symptoms, but they were too complicated and contradictory. She spoke again of her sister, returning to the main point upon which she had sought the interview. She was a decidedly attractive woman, with a face rendered more interesting by her widow's garb. But why was she masquerading so cleverly? For what reason had old Mr. Courtney contrived to efface his identity so thoroughly? As I looked at her, mourning for a man who was alive and well, I utterly failed to comprehend one single fact of the astounding affair. It staggered belief. "'Let me speak candidly to you, Ralph,' she said, after we had been discussing Ethelwyn for some little time. "'As you may readily imagine, I have my sister's welfare very much at heart, and my only desire is to see her happy and comfortable instead of pining in melancholy as she now is. I ask you frankly, have you quarrelled? No, we have not, I answered promptly. Then if you have not, your neglect is all the more remarkable, she said. Forgive me for speaking like this, but our intimate acquaintanceship in the past gives me a kind of prerogative to speak my mind. You won't be offended, will you? she asked with one of those sweet smiles of hers that I knew so well. Offended? Certainly not, Mrs. Courtney. We are two old friends for that. Then take my advice and see Ethelwyn again, she urged. I know how she adores you, 
I know how your coldness has crushed all the life out of her. She hides her secret from mother, and for that reason will not come down to Nenaford. See her, and return to her, for it is a thousand pities that two lives should be wrecked so completely by some little misunderstanding which will probably be explained away in a dozen words. You may consider this appeal an extraordinary one, made by one sister on behalf of another, but when I tell you that I have not consulted Ethelwyn, nor does she know that I am here on her behalf, you will readily understand that I have both your interests equally at heart. To me it seems a grievous thing that you should be placed apart in this manner, that the strong love you bear each other should be crushed, and your future happiness be sacrificed. Tell me plainly, she asked in earnest, you love her still, don't you? I do, was my frank outspoken answer, and it was the honest truth. End of chapter 21 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.